Hello and welcome to The Grand Thunk, the podcast in which we, Alex Blanchard and Rhiannon Kearns, discuss what we've been reading, watching and listening to. A fairly simple premise. Welcome. Hello. So we have transcripts in our Linktree bio on our Instagram, which is at The Grand Thunk. You can message us on there or email us on thegrandthunk at gmail.com. We love to hear you get in touch. So please subscribe, rate, review and tell all of your friends. Thank you. How are you? I'm really good. I've got a question for you. Hit me. Because you're part, oh, I was about to say you're part of the Bangs gang, but I realise that might sound odd. You've got bangs. What? <laughs> what? You've got a fringe. Oh, yes. <laughs> Sorry. I totally didn't register the word bangs as fringe. I just didn't know where you're going with that at all. Yes, no, I, I do. Out of context, that sounded... <laughs> <laughs> I was like, where is this going? How are your lockdown bangs? Oh, terrible. Fully, fully disappeared. So I used to have, not full fringe, but it, I suppose it was the shape of a full fringe, but it was quite like thin, if that makes sense. Like it wasn't mm-hmm. block full fringe. And sometimes if it would get a bit long, I'd sort of like push it to either side. And that has, I've just had to fully embrace that. Full on curtains is my current hairdo. Very um, nice. I did cut it the first few times in lockdown. I just made such a mess of it that by the time I went back to the hairdressers, they were just sort of shocked and horrified and I've just not touched it since. <laughs> I had a bit of a trim last night because I have just been watching very late to the game, normal people. Oh, so I nearly, but I thought it was just too egotistical of me. I nearly tried to describe my fringe by talking about Daisy Edgar Jones's fringe oh. just then. And then I thought, no, I can't compare my fringe <laughs> game to hers. Hers is so good. But it's what I'm aiming so for point. is her fringe. And I what know. I've got right now is so far from that. I know. I really <laughs> was channeling that last night. I wish I could see it. You have to send me a picture. Yes, yeah, so you've just watched Normal People. I've just watched Normal People. I'm mm. really late to the party. Have you seen it? I have. I've seen it and I've read it. Tell me what you think. Well, so I've only watched the first couple of episodes and I have read it and I'm so confused. I love it <laughs> and I really hate it. And I'm, okay. I have no idea why. I, I'm just so up and down, just oscillating everywhere. So I'm going to describe it, but I feel like uh-huh. everyone must know what it is. <laughs> it's on Hulu and BBC iPlayer and it's based on Sally Rooney's eponymous novel, and it's the story of Connell and Marianne with the amazing fringe. And <laughs> <laughs> and they go to school together and Marianne's a bit of a loner. And Connell... So Connell has gathered quite a large fan base. But in my opinion, he's a fairly uncharismatic, bland, in with the popular crowd guy. And mm. they spend time outside of school because Connell's mum cleans for Marianne's mum. And they start having sex, but Connell doesn't want anyone at school to know. So they have this secret, really steamy relationship. Meanwhile, Connell's friends are busy bullying and excluding Marianne. It's so awful he's when you hear there. it described, isn't it? It's just <laughs> <know>. like terrible. <laughs> I know. I just have the lowest opinion of him as a character. But I think it's really interesting to have a character like that and to have a relationship like that displayed on screen in which someone is so cowardly in the face of a peer group. Because there is something weirdly fundamentally likeable about him, isn't there? No. And like that should be... (laughs) 
<laughs> well, no, 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 that's no, no. What I was thinking. <laughs> so if I have that opinion of him being fundamentally fundamentally likable, and then I hear you listing all that off, I'm like, wow, yeah, why is that? So it's really interesting. I think you're programmed to like him and want him to be better. Well, I was. And then when you actually sit down and review what he what he does for the first half of this show, yeah, it's pretty horrible. I'm interested to see how he redeems himself. Mm. They're at university at the moment. Okay. I think they're fantastic characters and I think they're brilliantly acted. So, so good. Yeah, really, really. I'm just not part of the Connell fan group. I just feel like he's really insecure and passive and cowardly and I just don't know how on earth I could ever root for him and Marianne getting together because Marianne is just a goddess in every way shape and form yeah she's awesome yeah I know what you mean it's a weird dynamic and I'm totally on board with you in the Marianne fan club Mm. much more than the Connell I think she's wonderful and I think Jessica Jones is phenomenal I didn't feel that resentment or pushing away from Connell as much reading it as I did watching it which is a funny shift yes. How, do you feel the same about them watching as you did reading it was quite a while ago that I read the book mm. I remember reading it and it had a passing impression it didn't have a very long standing impression but I'm looking forward to I think Sally Rooney's got a new novel on the way which is very exciting <gasps> does she yes. oh that's exciting yes oh very good I've got a segue <laughs> Go on. Hope you're ready. The one redeeming factor about Connell was a very timely discussion he had at university about no platforming, which really actually helped tie up my thoughts this week. Mm -hmm. So what we recorded that you will be listening to next was recorded before we'd heard about the allegations of sexual battery and assault against Shia LaBeouf. I was thinking about what we should do with this episode as a result. Mm. And Connell made a point about free speech versus no platforming because I was sort of toying with the idea of free speech within no platforming. Can you really quickly give a definition of no platforming? So in my head, no platforming isn't an infringement of free speech because it's essentially a boycott of a person. So it's not giving a voice to that person, not giving them a platform on which to share their ideas as much Mm -hmm. and just essentially protesting the person in a way that you can without causing harm or violence in any way against them all you're doing is walking away and not listening yeah and would it be similar i mean the phrase cancel culture is battered around so much Mm. at the moment do you think of it as like a similar branch of cancel culture or kind of less or more extreme i'm not necessarily sure i know how to define cancel culture because I think the way that makes it easier to think about is if someone was standing on the street yelling something that you didn't want to hear, you would just walk away from that person. Mm. Or if someone was standing on the, on a street handing out flyers and talking about something you were really supportive of, you might take a flyer and then show it to your friends or something. Yeah, that's a really good example. I think that's my impression of how we should handle the situation just to not hand the flyers out to any more friends. We've yeah did talk about him in this episode and I I think as well similar to the press for the recent film with Vanessa Kirby which I think she looks like she does a magnificent performance I haven't seen it but that there has to be a sort of acknowledgement but then a moving on because cancel culture sounds incredibly aggressive but I'm not that's it yeah totally sure that it actually is because all it is 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 a sort of turning of the shoulder isn't it 
Yeah, I think there's probably, from my understanding, not too many fundamental differences. But you're right in no platforming versus cancel culture. The two just sound completely different. Cancel culture sounds, let's sort of rub out and erase this person. Mm. Whereas no platforming is, let's stop giving a voice to this person. So the allegations at the moment are alleged, which... Mm is I, I suppose the idea of cancel culture is everyone getting on a bandwagon you know the idea of a sort of witch hunt which yeah. I think is definitely the wrong term to use when it comes to the me too movement and things like that that cancel culture is quite often that if it becomes the zeitgeist mm. to cancel someone rather than you're cancelling them yes. because you fundamentally disagree with the principles in which they've they are propounding mm-hmm. yeah that makes a lot of sense. So my thought is with this episode that we cut out as much as we can whilst keeping as much sense of the episode as possible. Yeah, I would completely agree. And to encourage you all to listen to FKA Twigs' music because it's absolutely mm. stunning. I think we should all <laughs> listen to Cellophane. <laughs> that is a good course of action. I watched... My octopus teacher, after we spoke last week. Did you? And, oh my God, so good. So good. Agree with what you're saying about... So My Octopus Teacher was a Netflix documentary that Alex recommended last week about an octopus and a man, a documentary maker, who has this really long-term relationship, basically, in, in interaction with the um, relationship. That's the wrong word. Not a romantic relationship. Uh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> interesting, <laughs> intense dynamic with this octopus and I watched it with Sam who I mentioned before is a marine biologist which was very interesting because anything I was wowed by he was like 10 times more wowed by because I think obviously he understands Mm. normal and abnormal marine behavior a lot more than me and and you know Uh, the things when the octopus was like on his hand and coming out to see him and the the touch and everything it was so crazily rare and unbelievably intense and intimate it was a really good watch I really loved it really beautiful isn't it i'm Mm. so glad you watched it so glad you enjoyed it as well yeah in other news i am going to read a poem by louise gluck who is the Nobel laureate of this year i thought i'd read one of her poems in celebration i'm a gluck novice i'm a gluck newbie (laughs) (laughs) sounds like a very cool kind of band or collection of people (laughs) so it's called the wild iris at the end of my suffering there was a door Hear me out, that which you call death, I remember. Overhead, noises, branches of the pine shifting, then nothing. The weak sun flickering over the dry surface. It is terrible to survive as consciousness buried in the deep earth. Then it was over, that which you fear, being a soul and unable to speak, ending abruptly, the stiff earth bending a little, and what I took to be birds darting in the low shrubs. You who do not remember passage from the other world, I tell you, I could speak again. Whatever returns from oblivion returns to find a voice. From the centre of my life came a great fountain, deep blue shadows on azure seawater. Which I just thought was beautiful Mm. and made me think as lockdowns and vaccines about how the earth and humanity is going to be reborn into friendship and hugging and touching once more (laughs) oh that's such a lovely way of yeah of connecting with that that poem was really lovely it was really beautiful and i can't wait to read more i'm gonna get a collection of her poetry and have a read through because i've not read any of her works before there she is our noble laureate something far less profound than that lovely poem is something i watched on the weekend which is basically i watched a saturday night game show and absolutely loved it (laughs) 
<laughs> so like a sort of who wants to be a millionaire those sorts yeah. of things yeah oh, it's cool. a new show it's got Michael McIntyre hosting it and it's called The Wheel and I'm saying it just smirking because if anyone's seen this they'll know exactly what I mean and if anyone hasn't they're going to find this really weird but <laughs> there's like this theme tune that they play when the wheel spins and it's mm-hmm. like I can't even do the song but there's just this voiceover that goes The Wheel the wheel (laughs) and it's so catchy and yet it's not a song (laughs) it's so good it's basically a game show where there's a wheel and it's got different celebrities around the edge and they each have their like category of knowledge of a topic and then a member of the public kind of gets brought up from down below into the middle of this wheel and then the wheel spins and you see what category you get but you might choose like football because some sports presenter has said that's their topic but then it might land on a different celebrity so you've got to answer like football questions with Gokwan who's on there for fashion or something you know so you answer Gokwan's questions about football no, I explained that terribly. So each famous person has their topic that they're the expert in. So Gokwan had fashion as his sort of topic of choice. Mm. And then when you come into the wheel, you pick a topic you think you'll be good at. So if I was good at fashion, I'd say mm. I want to pick fashion. But then they spin all the celebrities around. So the celebrity that lines up with fashion might not be Gokwan. And you might have someone else that's no good at fashion helping you answer this question. Oh, helping you. I see. Sorry. Oh, yeah, I missed out that bit. So the celebrity helps you answer the question. Oh, okay, okay, um, okay. It's just so much fun. That sounds amazingly fun. <laughs> I happened to watch it. Like we were saying the other week, I don't really watch much sort of terrestrial TV anymore. It's all on demand. <laughs> Is that what it's called? Terrestrial TV? Is it? I have no idea. I think so. <laughs> I'm now questioning it. <laughs> no, I don't know. I just thought I, just thought I was going crazy. <laughs> Terrestrial TV, I love it. <laughs> oh dear. But it was just on, basically. It was after something else I'd had on and it came on and I was like, oh, this is good. And yeah. can't wait for Saturday for another episode of The Wheel. It's good. Oh my good. God. Well, I'm tempted to watch it because that does actually sound like fun. Wholesome. You should. And then please send me send me a voice note of you singing along to The Wheel. <laughs> the Wheel. I will for sure. I've been also enjoying some, not necessarily light, but sort of TV. Kristen Stewart in conversation mm. for Actors on Actors. Oh, on YouTube. That does sound such good. an amazing conversation. It sort of drops into this discussion of art and the moment, which I hadn't ever applied to acting. And I've heard that moment sort of described as a lot of things, but that moment of inspiration or flow or that sort of frazzle of creative energy that sometimes you just get and that it comes to a peak. And with acting, because obviously you're restricted by the time pressures of everyone else on set and the lighting and the production design and director that you aren't in in control of when you can use that energy and so you have to curate Mm. that energy for the right moment in time it was just such an interesting thing to point out and they talk about filming with long rolling shots or shots that are very intense in a burst and and they talk about fear as well within that whether you need film to fear whether you need fear to film and whether you're acting from a place of love or from a place of fear and they talk about externally with people creating fear on set but also applying to how you approach the art with fear or with love which is so important i heard maggie hamling 
giving a talk on her painting and she was saying that painting is just layers of failure until you get it right which i just mm, love in such a world of you know everything being perfect in the moment so it's just beautiful to think of everything as just layers of failure mm. and at some point it might be right it sounds like a great series as a whole is it is it a series of interviews or is it just them yeah no it's a series of interviews I love hearing actors talk about their process or experiences on set or generally about the... I just find it fascinating. I used to be obsessed with watching Inside the Actors Studio. It's like an American Mm. talk show with James Lipton. And Mm. it just had like all my favourite actors would go on it, American actors and sometimes British actors. And they would just talk to them about their training, their first shows, how they approach projects, all sorts. And it was just, oh, I just find it so interesting. All the things you always wonder when you're watching, but you never know. So it sounds Mm. like I'll definitely have to check that one out. Yeah, I think there are a lot of different ones. And the round table with actors as well, I think is a similar one. But this one's just really such an intense deep dive. They discuss the way in which you prepare for acting as well, which I've always seen from a writing side. And I had never paralleled acting and writing as much as I had in this discussion. But Kristen was talking about how you cram your body full of all these ideas and thoughts and snippets. And then when you come to the moment of having to act or for me, write, you just have to let it go and let Mm. whatever wants to come out, come out. And they divide this self into all the self into this headiness on the body which I guess I interpreted as intuition you can be heady before doing your craft but while just doing it you have to just let your instincts take over mm. which I know is true for Rue as well about his sculpture that the moment he starts thinking about it he has to stop yeah and another thing that Kristen mentioned this is it was such a pithy interview that Kristen said which really caught my attention was this idea of art as obsessing over a thing until you know why you're obsessed by it and I just can't think of a better way of encapsulating art that's a great definition yeah yeah whether you're experiencing or creating that an idea will just catch you and if you read the right book at the right time it sparks a unique and fiery thought train or if you write an idea or around an idea at that perfect time you suddenly catch this snippet of an obsession and that goes and goes and then suddenly burns out and becomes this new transformed same but different thing and I read this one poet describing how poetry came to them and they'll be sort of working in the field or doing some mundane task and suddenly they'll feel on the breeze the flow of poetry coming and she would run back into the house and just as the wind caught her be there ready with a pen and paper Mm. to write the poem as it blew through her and if she missed it then she missed it oh wow yeah just really inspired by their conversation oh that sounds so interesting yeah I definitely have to give that one a listen Mm. I've got another question for you yeah, go on. Whether as an actor you find it difficult that you're not the author of the work you're creating, that you're mm. an enabler of it rather than an author? Do you know, I've never thought that before. I think I, I don't disconnect it in a, like in, in a dismissive way, but more in, like you were saying earlier, what Kristen Stewart said about almost obsessing over it, analysing. I love doing loads of like table work, loads of analysis of the text, loads of research and then doing that to the point where you have to then get up on your feet and let it all kind of go because it's impossible to act and have all that in your head at the same time. You'd never be able to let go of you and become someone else. So mm. what was your original question about finding it, being the, or not being the author of the words? Yes, or that you're enacting the words rather than creating them. I mean, it's, a, it's an act of yeah. creation, of course. I think I kind of love that I think about it I love that Mm. I'm taking something on that already is so good Mm. and I think lots of people always say the best plays the best films the best scripts 
you just have actors that can take on fantastic writing. And I think people and, and really successful actors who you hear interviewed about amazing work they've done, they always bring it back to the writing. And it's such mm. a gift and it's so easy to act well when the writing's really brilliant. I really enjoy that about it, that I think I love taking on words that someone else has crafted and then using them in the way that hopefully they, they're meant to be used, but also having that degree of that degree of freedom and of flexibility and imagination with it, but knowing mm. fundamentally it's somebody else's brilliant work that you are like the vessel for mm. kind of takes away the responsibility, I guess, a little bit in a good way. Mm. I find it very hard to, whenever I've been in a situation that's akin to acting, because I would never call anything I've done acting, but the, <laughs> the, to disconnect from my thinking about it. Mm. I find it very hard to let go into the intuitive, as you were saying, that vessel idea. And that seems almost an impossibility of, for me to just let go and stop thinking and yeah. be a vessel, which I guess is why I've chosen the, the role I have. Mm. Have you been in rehearsal rooms or workshop spaces when you've seen actors bring your writing to work? And is that weird and hard to let go of it? Do you ever hear someone doing your work and you're like, oh, that's not how it's meant to be? Yes. <laughs> I One of the iterations of the play that I wrote, I was very involved in. And then the second one, I wasn't as involved in. And it was much mm. easier for the second one to let go and let the director be a director. Um, the first one, I was very too connected and controlling. I mean, it was an extraordinary experience and one of those totally in a sort of destructive way it was almost like an incredibly destructive relationship where particularly a couple of the lead actors and I became just so involved in the material of the text mm. it was quite extraordinarily <laughs> intense but as such an amazing experience but yeah really difficult to let go of the interpretation that I wanted yeah. from the script and once I had seen it through the first time the next time it was put on by a different cast in a different city, different director, I was ready to let go of it and let it become its own sure. Interesting. entity. Yeah. I've never written and had my work performed by anyone else. Mm. I'm, not, I'm not really a writer, so that, that makes sense. Um, but I can only imagine that if I ever went down a writing path, I would be so unbearable in the room. I can already imagine. Just mean, I, I think I'd find that really hard to write something and then see it done, especially because I'd be writing it with the actor's brain as well. I'd be writing mm. it knowing how I wanted it performed or how I envisioned it and then I think if I saw it done differently I'd find that really hard but I guess that's why I'm neither a writer or a director so that's okay <laughs> <laughs> when you write something that's just meant to be read the only layer of interpretation is between you and the reader's brain essentially maybe an editor's or whatever mm. aside but it's just you and the reader whereas with a play it's you and then it's the cast and then it's the lighting. There's so yeah, many layers so many layers to how <laughs> it might be staged. I think it's always going to be better when it's the culmination of many different people's brains. But I think it can be then more difficult mm. if you do have a vision that is total, I guess. Mm. I have been reading this little book. It's a little cute yellow book and it's called Truth to Power, Seven Ways to Call Time on BS by Jess Phillips, the MP. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. Have you have you read it or heard of it before? No, I just love Jess Phillips. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, me too. So Jess Phillips is a Labour MP for Birmingham Yardley, and she was actually a candidate for Labour leadership, mm. but withdrew in the process, which I was gutted about. But she is, for anyone not familiar with her, she is a straight-talking, relatable, passionate MP. I'm a big fan. I'm not in her constituency, so I can't say this with absolute certainty, but she seems like, and I read a lot, that she is really on the ground, always touching base and connected with her community. And she's given some amazing speeches. If you put Jess Phillips into YouTube, you kind of can just mm. sit and be inspired for a few hours. <laughs> Notably on International Women's Day every year, yes. she reads out the, all the names of women who have been killed that year from male violence since the previous year. She's the shadow minister for domestic violence and safeguarding. And she's so passionate and, conne- and like I said, connected to her work. She's worked for Women's Aid. She's constantly visiting, speaking, being informed, being advised by the people that she's trying to help. And I know that sounds really simple and obvious, but I just think that's so impressive these days because we don't often find that Mm. in politics as much as we should. So this book is a fantastic little book. It's a combination of her personal experiences, other people's stories that she's interviewed and spoken to for the book, and most importantly, practical, easy tips, ways to get organized, to find the tools, to speak up and to make change. So it's kind of like a, yeah, it's kind, it's not like a, how to guide but it does have elements of that Mm. which I think is really interesting because it's not just inspiring it's practical in how you read this story think how awesome this moment is and now here's why it worked and she breaks it down so there's chapters titled things like building momentum and feel the fear and backlash and how to deal with all of those different elements and it kind of takes you on a chronological journey through the process of affecting change Mm. it's also peppered with all these real stories from real people taking action that she'd spoken to for the book. So a couple of examples I've pulled out are Zelda Perkins, who, as a 24-year-old woman, reported Harvey Weinstein when she was working at Miramax. Mm. And this was sort of 20 years before the world caught up with his horrors. And she spoke up and she affected her own small change. And then it talks about how what she did was amazing and how it didn't get taken further. And we didn't find out all the things we know now back then and things that weren't her fault, but she didn't have the resources. She didn't have the power. She didn't have all of these things. And it it just breaks down real stories Mm. in a real how-to way. It's really interesting. Another one that really stuck with me was Cara Sanquest, who is a campaigner and she was really involved in the Together for Yes campaign in Ireland and who spearheaded the home to vote campaign during the repeal the eighth amendment Mm. she got involved because she responded to the story of Dr Savita Halapanova who died of septicemia after she was denied an abortion during an incomplete miscarriage and it was a real Oh, it sounds awful to say poster story for the campaign because that sounds really Mm. reductive but it was a real spearhead point of the campaign because there was this kind of beautiful woman shining out from all the posters and she she died for such an avoidable reason and it was so tragic. Mm. And Cara, like many other people, saw this as a call to arms and joined forces to campaign for change and went on to spearhead the Home to Vote campaign, which brought so many sort of London Irish yeah. citizens over to vote and create great change. So there's just loads of stories like that that are peppered throughout the book. And like I said, they break down how and why and what next, which is really interesting. And it's also, there's also some great examples of Jess's own work. She talks about challenging David Cameron to permanently exempt refuge accommodation from changes in the housing benefit system. So basically making sure that refuge 
accommodation doesn't end up being shut down because of money issues mm-hmm. later down the line. And so basically safeguarding women who escape domestic violence mm-hmm. in their future refuge. And she talks about the kind of tactic she went into that argument with mm-hmm. and she quoted what she knew his deflection would be to him before he could. Oh, wow. And so she quoted the 40 million pounds that she knew he was going to say, oh, we're putting 40 million pounds towards these services over the next four years. Mm -hmm. And she knew he'd come back with that. So instead she used it in her argument to him. And she said, I don't want to hear more about this 40 million pounds because you and I both know that will not stop these refuges closing. Yeah. And it was then so disarming and there was no party line to come back with that he had no choice but to answer more on the spot, more honestly, and more understanding of her Mm. argument. And eventually, you know, she won and he agreed and that change was made. And it was so cool reading about it in a more tactical way about how these, how these things happen. And I just found it, I started reading it when I was given it a year or so ago. And as it was nonfiction, I sort of dipped in and out of it as I was Mm. reading other things. And I've just come back to it recently. And I think it's interesting in the times we're in, because it just feels like, public protesting and demonstrating and writing to your MP and things like that are on the rise and it's more normal to take action these days, hopefully. I was wondering whether that was just me getting older and being more aware of it or... (laughs) So as I was making notes for this, I thought that. I was like, is it just because of my age and, you know, I'm living in London and those factors of why I think this? No, I have no idea. Yeah. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. I'm not sure. But I just think, especially the writing to the MP thing, I think that's really, it's so easy to do these days. And I think it is on the rise. And so it's just really interesting to then read this book full of these inspiring examples followed with practical advice. Mm-hmm. And it just made me realise why she's such a force to be reckoned with because she's incredibly smart and so passionate. And uh, yeah, it's a really, really great book. Yeah, that's so cool. That sounds like an amazing resource. Mm. Really useful as a as a tool. And so important that people should know how to be able to affect change in their country. Yeah, for sure. It's almost one of those key... I always expected as a as a younger person that the right thing, justice would always happen because justice is justice and the right thing would always happen because it's the right thing. And you don't realise how much of the right thing is something that's decided upon because of public pressure and because of an argument yeah. or a discussion and it's just people talking mm-hmm. that creates an argument and a discussion and affects the right sort of change and that you have mm. to be active and be part of that to create what you think is right to happen in the world but yeah really sounds like an awesome resource she's done a really beautiful podcast with elizabeth day on how to fail which oh has she oh, i've not heard that episode. dips into her backstory and her family's troubles which led her to be in the position that she's been in really interesting episode really really beautiful I've read two books this week. First was called Educated by Tara Westover, which I tore through. It is a memoir of Tara growing up in a Mormon household halfway up a mountain. And her father grows increasingly distrustful. Tara believes because of a bipolar disorder of any footprint or trace in the world. So she grew up without a birth certificate, without going to school, without going to the doctors. And he also really, truly believed in the end of days. So they spent a lot of their time preparing for an apocalypse, you know, stockpiling food, weapons, fuel. It was this incredibly dangerous and dysfunctional household without any sort of external influences. So 
totally the narrative of what her father and mother had created within the household. And her father ran an, an extremely erratic junkyard where all the children helped out and the haphazardness and illogical way in which it was run led to some horrific accidents. And in each of these accidents, first with Tara's brother Luke and then her brother Sean, there are these dual narratives about what happened. Tara and her brothers Tyler and Richard remember on both occasions that the injured boys were left to their own devices to make their way home or left sitting on the side in the junkyard whilst their father did maybe important other things like so Luke burnt his leg. He was wearing a pair of jeans tied up with a piece of string and got soaked in petrol and then accidentally set on fire when he was using a welder later that day. And his father put out the fire and then saw that he had set fire to some grassland and so left him to make his way back to the house where her mother then treated, her mother was a herbalist, so then treated him with herbs. And her brother Sean suffered a horrific head injury and was just left sitting on the side in the junkyard Mm -hmm. until he started reacting incredibly violently and then was taken to hospital because someone in the junkyard decided to phone an ambulance. Anyway, he believed in this idea that God would help out where necessary and would sort things out, essentially. Anyway, so that's the narrative that Tara and her brothers Tyler and Richard remember and the rest of the family believe another story where the father helped get the child to safety or into the right hands before doing anything else. Hmm. The family is divided on those lines as Tyler, Richard and Tara, against the odds, become educated and all of them end up getting doctorates. And Tara's fascination in history and who writes it, it gives such a beautiful and brilliant, almost sort of neutral backdrop against this crazy family history. And she acknowledges all the faults of memory and takes the multiple perspectives of her family into account. And I think this is due to the way in which her family have rewritten both the history of the world and gaslighting events happening within the family. It's such a complicated and balanced memoir and it explores this mix of sort of madness religion domestic abuse misogyny familial bonds and education without ever making a spectacle the only thing that springs to mind is tragedy porn that Mm. fetishization of tragedy and it's just a really brilliant look at the way in which narratives get rewritten within human memory i think yes a really worth a read that's such an interesting point about you know history being rewritten and i think especially in today's Mm. media and freedom of speech which is obviously a good thing but there's so many arguments about how far does freedom of speech impact accurate retelling of history you know there's so many Mm. versions of everything everything's so opinion-based and everything is out there in kind of equal measures on the internet. Obviously, you can check your sources, but things are so hard these days to mm-hmm. to properly validate. And I think it's moving forward. It'll be really interesting when we're grey and old to look back at this time and see how maybe this period of media dominance has changed how history is accurately recorded. Mm. It's interesting. And I think also that we are very preoccupied with the idea of one truth, that something Mm. is either right or wrong. Yes. I think that's what Tara is sort of playing with, this idea that actually I think both things can be true. And she never really asserts that her version is right. 
she's laying out both truths and saying both of them are true to these two sets of people mm. and that is sometimes okay it is okay to understand that multiple truths do exist for people because of whatever set of reasons whatever set of circumstances which have created a belief system that is what is true to that person it's it's not untrue yeah. even if it is not your truth <laughs> yeah i think we're so desperate to like categorize everything and and black and white and it's right or wrong we are so binary with things mm. that adjusting to versions and gray areas and scales is still quite new and alien to humans and it, it's getting used to it in different contexts isn't it mm. Mm. Yeah, and accepting contradictions, which I find, everyone finds really hard, I think. Yeah, for sure. The second book I read... Hit me. <laughs> ...is 10 Minutes and 38 Seconds in This Strange World by Alif Shafak, which was shortlisted for the Booker Prize in 2019. This is the story of the last 10 minutes and 38 seconds of Tequila Leila, who's a Turkish sex worker who has just been murdered and is found lying in a dumpster. And it's based on the concept that your brain keeps on firing for minutes after your death and keeps producing thoughts. And so Leila's brain flashes through the memories of her childhood in Eastern Turkey, who Leila calls auntie, her father's second wife, is in fact her mother. When auntie Benaz asks her, do you believe me? When she tells her that she's her mother, Leila begins to understand how enormous the gift of belief is. When she's 16, and she tells her family about the sexual abuse that she suffered at the hands of her uncle and their prompt desire to marry her off to her uncle's son. Through their actions, she realises that her family do believe her, but they are choosing to protect her uncle. So she runs away to Istanbul and then gets sex trafficked and later becomes a sex worker. And I feel like... <laughs> Now that I'm, you know, recapping both these books that I've read, I feel like both of them sound quite moribund and sad and tragic, but actually they are both full of a lot of hope and beauty and really interesting and thoughtful at the same time. They're not, again, preoccupied with those details of human darkness. Mm. So the book is a story of her five friends that she meets through her life who are these surprising and unique and vibrant characters. And it's about the warmth and joy of their relationships as they interact with Layla and, and they inform and create and develop her life. It's then about their story when Layla's body is found and then buried in the cemetery of the companionless. And it becomes their midnight escapade to rescue her body and bear it somewhere suitable. All the her friends are people who are sort of unrecognised and unseen and they're here in this book demanding your attention and love and it's this surreal, heartwarming, thoughtful, really beautiful celebration of family, but not necessarily blood family, but the family you create around you and those bonds. And it was just a really beautiful book, which I loved. Oh, it sounds really a, a real journey. I know that sounds obvious, but it mm. sounds like a, a real roller coaster through like you said the hope but also a lot of tragedy and, and depth as well mm. it tells about the story of, of a young man that she meets in her brothel then they go on to marry she's a very human character and she brings out a lot of humanity in the people that she meets around her mm. oh it sounds like a great read mm. i've been 
I didn't think I'd finish it in time for today, but it, that shows how what good telly it was because mm. I totally binged the last few and I've made it to the end <laughs> of the series. <laughs> I've watched Industry on BBC. I think it's actually a HBO production that then came to BBC afterwards, which I'm seeing mm. a lot. I don't know if I'm just waking up to that. Industry is an eight-part series set in the city in London in mm. the world of investment banking, Oh, which, you know, the high finance world is not one I know anything about. <laughs> Which was reinforced in the first 15 minutes when I didn't understand anything they said about work or the jargon and thought, huh, is this going to really affect the show? Which it doesn't actually. There are moments where I wish I slightly can't, can't even dip my toe in the water of the realm of what they're doing because just so above my understanding of money and finances. But hey... And it's set in this bank called Pierpoint, and it's focused on a program of graduate students who are just starting at Pierpoint on this grad scheme, and they're clearly the kind of cream of the crop to be starting out on this prestigious program. Mm. The kind of setup is that they work there for a year on different desks with different managing directors. They're sort of spread out in the company. And after a year, they face RIF, which is reduction in force which is basically they all have to pitch to the board and the company about why they should stay and what they've learned and what they can offer. (laughs) Yeah. As well as that, it's also filmed and streamed live onto the work floor. So you're doing it in this kind of conference room to sort of 12 board members and then everyone you've been working with. So it's all focused towards Riff as the series. And obviously in the last episode, we we have Riff. It's a great show. I've really enjoyed it. It's left me thinking about loads of things. It's quite confronting in many ways. It's so intense in terms of the content on every level. This is just a world I know nothing about. And so it was all staggering to me. They just, they work crazy hours. They go and party all night, entertaining clients, high class drugs, loads of sex. It's fast paced, it's high octane. And it was so full on. And it it kind of initially left me thinking, is it really like that? I don't know anything about this. This could all just be a massive stereotype. Mm. But when I finished it, I then started reading some articles about it and things when I wanted to know how accurate it was and if it was just dramatized for the benefit of good TV. But I read a really interesting article in the Financial Times, which is the first time I've ever said that sentence, (laughs) with the show's creators, Mickey Down and Conrad Kay, who are both ex-investment bankers. Mm. They wanted to create a show that accurately reflect and showed what the city actually is and I just thought I was like whoa okay so this is the real deal I mean they've been out of that world for probably 10 years so they also referenced that there might be some of the Mm. things that went on probably wouldn't fly anymore I'll just read you a quote from Mickey Down he says the stress test we had for everything in the plot was even if we push this a little bit was there some world in which this could happen to someone of this level and there always was so they kind of took the realms of what they knew which are already at such a high level and so intense and built a TV show and it's it's so dramatic and at the heart of everything for me was just power the relationships are so focused on this balance of power you know what the grads wanted from their managing directors the Mm. pressure they could therefore put on them in return the levels of blackmail all this sort of the manipulation intent or not intended it's there and it's all about power As a show, it felt less about the market and money in terms of the actual transactions and the drama of that than maybe other shows that are about money in the industry. And it felt more about the people and the sacrifice this job takes and what the Mm. world expects of you and the morals and the people that come with it and that side of thing, which was really intriguing to me from just a character level, which is why Mm. it didn't really matter that I had no clue what was going on in terms of finances. (laughs) It's just got a bit of everything and... Like I said, everything's so intense and there is a lot of sex in it. One of the things that I thought was balanced really well in that aspect was there's a really good male-female 
nudity ratio, which is so rare. <laughs> it was really impressive because we all raved about normal people earlier in the year. That was really open and it broke down barriers in terms of it actually dealt with things like consent really well and stuff like that but still everyone was outraged that they never actually saw Connell fully nude when they saw Marianne from every angle the balance in this was great the first time there was full frontal male nudity I was kind of surprised because (laughs) and I think the act of being surprised it sort of says more than anything and I was surprised because there was no build up to it it was just a naked guy Mm -hmm. walking in and I was like oh but then I guess the same way there's never a huge build-up to female nudity. It's just there all the time, so we're used to it. Well, not all the Mm. time, but you know what I mean. It's so much more normalised. I thought if it would happen like that, it would be for a huge reason or a massive plot line, and it was just Mm -hmm. there. And I was like, oh, fair, okay. Wow. The other thing that I think they've balanced really well is there is a much more even balance of straight and gay sex in it than other TV Mm. shows, which, again, I found quite surprising and almost quite confronting to watch, which in itself showed me how very hetero the mainstream TV industry still is Mm. which isn't you know staggering new information to anyone but it was just a gentle reminder to me that how rare it is for the shows and the films that I watch to see men having sex on TV or on film yeah I think I remember having the same reaction when I watched I May Destroy You which was the Michaela Cole TV show we talked about last week briefly Mm -hmm. because there's a gay storyline in that where we see gay sex and it's played out to the and the same in this show it's played out to the same scene length and and the storylines as in-depth as a straight scene would be. Mm-hmm. And that felt almost new and weird. And how new and weird that it feels new and weird, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really, really great and really well done. Mm-hmm. I read an article afterwards with the lead female actress, Myhala Herald, who is brilliant in it. And she was asked about the sex scenes and the nudity. And she said she kind of relished them, which I was like, wow, good on you. But she relished them because she says she described herself as kind of short. I'm kind of skinny. I have small boobs. I'd have loved to seen someone like me on TV when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, that's so, and she's quite young. I think she's 24. And I was like, that is amazing. What a, what a good attitude to have towards it. Mm. I think The other thing that I found really interesting about the show was it was so fast paced and intense, but they don't glamorize this world in a way, I guess they do in a sense, it did leave you going, oh, that's an exciting life. But also you see the total brutal cutthroat nature of it and the tragedy that comes along with that side of intense Mm. work-life balance. And it got me thinking about that whole work hard, play hard mentality, Mm. which is really key in this show and this world. But it's so glamorized these days, isn't it? That dynamic of overworking. And I almost think it's a brag to be like, oh, I had to pull an all-nighter. Whereas Mm -hmm. maybe before that was really tough or that was a real challenge of your job. Whereas now, I think especially as a creative, if you're not working on seven projects of your own through the night as well (laughs) as your day job in the day, like, do you even want it enough? And and I think that trickles into lots of industries, this idea of overworking as a kind of badge of honor. And that life balance is, has maybe tips. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, for sure. And it's something that I always struggle with. It's more in terms of people's understanding of what I do. I mean, I'm perfectly happy doing what I do. But I feel like people, when they watch me do what I do, must be incredulous that what I do is what I call work, <laughs> if that makes sense. In that you don't think of it as work because you enjoy it or as in... For me to write is to read. So I need to read a lot and I need to mull on ideas a lot, which requires a lot of what looks like doing nothing. Oh, yeah, I see what you mean. Okay, yeah. Which, I mean, I'm very conflicted about myself because that's 
what I really enjoy doing and I really love creating things. But at the same time, I can see that I am living life at a very slow pace in terms of productivity and work turnover. But only in terms of what we said the other week, which is, you know, when you were talking about that Zadie Smith article about mm. what is time, you know, what is the difference between making banana bread and writing a novel? Mm-hmm. I think your description of what might seem slow paced and not working hard only is at the comparison of versus mm. someone in the city working sort of 14 hour days with numbers. It's all, it's all yeah. comparative, isn't it? Yeah. The main thing that I always come back to whenever I well myself into a hole of, I guess, insecurity about it is the only reason we exist on earth is to do what we want to do and do what makes us happy. That mm-hmm. makes sense? Yep. To do what you love and do something that you think is benefiting society and to do something that makes you happy and therefore spread happiness is the only reason to do anything. <laughs> so why not do it? <laughs> hundred percent. And it's it's so brave to do that because it's so unusual, you know, and I think if you find something you love and you can make it work, oh, what a, mm. what a gift, but also it's still work, you know, I yeah. think you, you can enjoy it and you can work hard at it. And because that's not everyone's norm and it's not the nine to five mm. grind, which we're sort of assigned must be work, work equals nine to five. It feels different. I know what you mean with sort of fighting with mm. it, loving it and then feeling the kind of guilt's too strong a word, but the comparison between other types of work. And it led me actually to a really a good summing up quote of that kind of concept from Anna Whitehouse, who's a journalist and author. She does lots of campaigning under, I think on Instagram, she's called Mother Pucker. <laughs> and she does lots of work for campaigning, yeah, it's good, campaigning for flexible working rights for mothers mm-hmm. and working parents in general, but particularly mums. Anyway, she, I found a quote from her where she said, we need to Stop glamorizing Mm -hmm. overworking, please. The absence of sleep, good diet, exercise, relaxation and time with friends and family isn't something to be applauded. Too many people wear their burnout as a badge of honor and it needs to change. I just thought that really summed up what I was feeling about Mm. that kind of overworking vibe. And you're absolutely right. Like it's, it might sound really uh, basic and sort of two dimensional to say, if we have one life, do the things you love. But at the end of the day, that's so true. And and if you spend the whole life working an insane pace, what are you working for? I mean, I think there's, there's nothing wrong with working very hard. I think basically it's more, for me, it's more about letting everyone else do what they want to do. But equally, <laughs> let me do what I want to do. <laughs> because yeah, exactly. we all have different requirements and different things that fulfill us and different levels to which we can expose ourselves I I listened to another podcast by Elizabeth Gilbert and one of the things that she mentioned is that maintaining her mental health is a fairly full-time job (laughs) and I think that's Mm. the same for me that the more dislocated I become from myself or my happiness or my work or work as in the work that is my craft the more distance I've come from that the more unhinged I become and therefore I need to be doing what I need to do to stay happy and healthy and and, mm-hmm. and that's kind of just what i got to do like there's there's not really all that many ways around it mm, yeah have you ever had to do a sex scene or nudity or kissing scene or anything like that in your acting career i've done like kissing scenes and things i've never had to do any nudity there was a play we did at drama school that wasn't like a public performance it was an internal second year performance where i was in a rape scene it wasn't full frontal nudity or anything it was a a combination of 
it happening and then moving into sort of more physical theatre things as well. It was theatre, so it felt very different to how it would be if it was a filmed Mm. scene. So no, I haven't. And I was thinking that when I was watching it, because, you know, both the female parts in this show that I uh, stand out that if you had an audition for, you'd be buzzing, had so much nudity and such a variety of of different sex scenes that they had to do. Mm. And I was like, wow, could I do that? I don't know. And it's, I think it's a real... To say it's a skill, it perhaps sounds weird, but I think the art of films and TV doing it so that everyone's comfortable, Mm. everyone's respected, obviously, goes without saying. But then on top of that, to feel you can also act as well as all of that, I think that's so impressive. Yes. Like we were saying earlier, you've got all that research, you've got all those things going on in your head. To drop those and just live in the part is one thing. But then to do that and be aware Mm -hmm. of everything in terms of nudity and and sex scenes oh man that must be so hard and they obviously have you know there's a a job now on film sets which is sort of intimacy coordinator for those Mm -hmm. sorts of things and there's loads of ways it's done so I'm sure I I know I've watched interviews with the guy who plays Connell in Normal People Paul Meskel Meskel got there (laughs) and Daisy Edgar Jones about filming Normal People Mm -hmm. they almost talk with like fond memories of all of those moments because they became really close it didn't feel private it felt very staged funny moments like they had loads of fake sweat poured all over them and then when they were moving it sounded like a massive fart and everyone (laughs) on set like tried to be really respectful and like don't laugh at them in case one of them's farted they'll be so embarrassed and and they were just like absolutely dying laughing because it was just sweat sounds so I imagine (laughs) in that scenario you could probably get to a place where it didn't feel as hard as it looks mm. but yeah I've never had to and I, I don't know how I would it's such a I think you only have to think about it when it comes up potentially yeah and actually they talk about in the articles I've read with this show in industry mm. they talk about all the sex scenes really coming back to that distribution of power thing it's always someone giving power wanting power mm-hmm. rebalancing the power so that it's it definitely never feels gratuitous I think these days it's so rare for a show to get that wrong because it, there has been so many cases in the past where perhaps it has got has got it wrong that I think people are way more aware of using sex when it's needed and not just randomly mm. for the sake of it yeah it's so interesting yeah yeah not a challenge you have to face if you're a financial banker I've gone into the wrong industry <laughs> but again it's that conflict between I guess feminism and art almost mm. and yes gratuitous yeah I mean I think that's what's I don't know if you ever listened to the guilty feminist Mm. there are so many things in the world that seem anti-feminist or how do you put makeup and um, high heels and dressing up in a Mm. tight skirt you can't move in with feminism I find all those things incredibly difficult to navigate because I don't Mm. really know I don't really know feel like I'm going to start tying myself in knots here but I just (laughs) do find them quite hard to navigate because on the one hand I believe that women should be able to express themselves well women and and anyone who wants to wear a tight skirt and heels and makeup should be able to wear whatever they want and express themselves as they want but I also recognize that they are tools of oppression that have been used and are still used to manipulate and control it becomes an incredibly complex discussion um that I never I never quite reach an answer on. I, I reach an answer on where I'm happy for it to sit in relation to myself, but not necessarily, um, I don't necessarily have an absolute truth, as we we're saying. I have a, a, a sort of semi-truth that I, I bend for myself. But <laughs> And I think that's, that what, that's what works, I think, as, as well as being interested in the conversation and being open to the wider conversation on, you know, everyone else as well. Mm. 
to to focus on the truth for yourself is the only thing you really can, isn't it? Because like you said, it is too huge and it is too tangly to try and suss it out for how you feel about everyone else and how everyone else should feel about you. And actually, if you come to a place of peace with it for yourself, that's kind of all that matters for the day to day. And then it's, you know, listening and being informed Mm. from other conversations and other perspectives that's really helpful because I've definitely had those thoughts as well. Well, this took a turn. (laughs) What a thorny issue. (laughs) And it's quite a question in conversation because even if we were super experienced and, and, you know, knowledgeable in this area, there's still, like you said, there's no concrete answers. So we're just sort of fishing around for what you feel and what you think Mm. and and how things present themselves to you and what knock-on effect that has Mm. without actually getting anywhere or knowing anything. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for such an interesting discussion. And I'm so looking forward to talking next week. (laughs) As always, have a great one. You too. (laughs) Bye. Bye.